opened the door to the most powerful room in housing, built for mortgage executives, real estate leaders, and the rising stars that drive innovation and progress. The gathering will feature over 45 powerful speakers on stage in Scottsdale, Arizona from April 21st to 24th. Learn more and register now at housingwirethegathering.com. Welcome everyone. Today on Housing Wire Daily, I'm joined by lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about everything from Bank of America's new no-down loan and whether that means lending standards are too loose, to the all-out commodity war we're seeing as a result of Russian actions this weekend, to the continued extreme lack of inventory, and of course, the Federal Reserve. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is great to be here, Sarah. Great to have you on, as always. Lots going on. Is there, I mean, over the last two years, I've never not said there's so much going on we have to talk about. So that's why we have you on twice a week. Um, today, I'd like to ask you about one of the things that happened recently was that Bank of America rolled out uh, a special kind of loan, um, sort of no down, no closing costs. And they're, I think one of the most interesting things about it is that they are um, not requiring a typical credit score. They're not basing it on the credit score. And so this is, you know, definitely trying to uh, attract first time home buyers who maybe are shut out of this market. So would love to get your, you know, your, your take on that from a macroeconomic perspective. So this is something I've talked about recently with other media outlets. But uh, the first thing that comes to everyone's mind is, oh, it's 2008 all over again, right? 100% down, no FICO score. And uh, the optics of it don't look good, right? It looks like, okay, we're, we're making the same mistake. I think the first thing I have to tell you is that the debt structures of these loans are nothing like the products we had from 1996 to 2005. And that's always been uh, a big talking point of mine. You know, After 2010, uh, residential lending actually went back to normal, which means a fixed product with liberal lending standards. I, I'm not one of these tight lending uh, standards people that we've had over the last 12 years, but a functioning residential lending market, which has inherently always one risk. It's always late cycle lending. Um, and regarding this this loan, I understand the concept of it. It's a pilot program. There's not going to be a lot of volume, of course. You know, uh, you, you'd have to test run it. My concern with something like this is the same concern everyone should have. Late cycle lending is is a, is a concept that. People with the lowest down payment or zero do not have a lot of reserves if they buy a house going into a recession or during a recession and they lose their job. That is a short sale foreclosure risk. Even if home prices are still rising, there's not a lot of selling equity uh, here. So if you understand the risk to this product as an institution, as a government, then you can go ahead and, and, and provide that product. If you don't understand the risk uh, to this, then you shouldn't be in the business of lending. Uh, and I think that's, that's always been a big talking point of mine that over the years, that as long as the economic expansion is moving, the risk for any kind of foreclosure crisis or anything in that, in that manner is very minimal. Uh, because people have a fixed payment. As long as they're working, their wages rise every year. That fixed payment stays the same. So your cash flow gets better. Um, because of what we had after 2010, we have created the best home loan profiles ever recorded in US history. And I'm saying this 
as somebody whose family has been in banking since the late 1950s, uh, it's never going to look as good as this. And, and on top of the cash flow data, the nested equity positions are the highest ever recorded in history. So, so lending worked excellent over the last uh, 12 years. Uh, the 2005 ba uh, bankruptcy reform laws and the 2010 QM laws uh, spawned a backdrop of having the best home homeowner profiles ever. But now when we're talking about this product specifically, and any low down payment or no down payment loan or down payment assistance loan, if the Federal Reserve is talking about a housing reset, and this is why I want every financial reporter to ask them, and they're telling you we want the unemployment rate to go up. We want people to lose their jobs, right? You have other talking points or people saying that we need 6% unemployment rates to fight inflation. Then there is a risk to a product like this. Uh, there's a risk to all products that have no down or very low down. So as long as that is understood, then if there is a job loss recession and people that obtain this loan specifically or any kind of low down payment loans, lose their home, then everyone has to realize that was the risk going into this home purchase. So there can't be any, I did not know what I was getting into, or the bank saying, we didn't know what we we're getting into. Um, because the relatively guidelines are simple in the sense that you, know, you still have to qualify with the debt to income ratio. So in essence, if you're still employed, uh, you should be making the payment. Um, there isn't this notion of people buying a home and home prices falling and then everyone walking away. You know, podcast stock traders with fake names on Twitter accounts talk about this all the time. And again, these are, <laughs> once again, I did this today on Twitter, show that stock traders, typically men who don't have families, will sell anything after hours to get out. Homeowners don't think this way, right? You make a commitment. You know, you got a 30-year fixed loan, you make your payment, you live in your house, your family moves, does their normal thing every single day. So the only inherent risk is, 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 is a loan that did not have a lot of selling equity and you lose your job. My concern is that if the Federal Reserve is talking about a recession, we need to do this. We got to break inflation down. And we put a pilot program, which is, means there's not going to be much going on here. There has to be an understanding that you know, there are some risks in lending. And then it goes into a bigger topic of mine, which has always been, how do you have housing affordable and also make it your best investment? Because part of this is we want to close the wealth gap. So the government wants forced savings, right? You buy a home, you pay down your principal. If home prices rise, you have some, uh, you have uh, your wealth goes up. Okay, that's fair. But it's also part of the problem why you know home prices have escalated out of control. The system is designed to keep prices inflated. So if you subsidize the housing market, which is always subsidized, uh, you have low mortgage rates. Um, you know, there's there's a problem with with how we look at this. You know, to me, housing is the cost of shelter to your own capacity to own a debt. It's not an investment. Right, it's just the payment you make to live, and then when you focus on wealth creation, on the house, 
you don't realize what you're doing in a sense of the financial tax systems of housing or or the subsidization of low down payment loans or cutting interest rates to to help the economy grow so we have to we actually we did we paid the price we paid the price of trying to make shelter or wealth creation and home prices accelerated and all those homeowners did great right especially those homeowners that sold and had a lot of nested equity and they were by to, able to buy maybe a bigger home in a cheaper area but then again those people created a housing inflation for other uh residents you know those those flyover states and people moving so the, it's it, we have a very awkward system because on one hand we tell you it's your best investment and then on the other hand you know uh we subsidize the housing market to make it a big, uh, a, 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 your best investment. And then we complain about housing not being affordable. And then we create products that, you know, hopefully can get people in to be part of the wealth creation. You know, we got caught. And uh, my concern is at, at this stage of the economic cycle, with all six of my recession red flags up, uh, there should be some discipline or some kind of mindfulness that if you buy a home late in a cycle with a very low down payment, there is a risk of a foreclosure if you lose your job. If you don't lose your job, you shouldn't you know, uh, uh, lose your house. This is the difference between 2002 you know, to 2011. People were filing for foreclosures and bankruptcies while the unemployment rate was falling because the debt structures were ex very exotic. There, there were toxic loans. We don't have that anymore. But let's be mindful of what the Federal Reserve is basically telling us. Our government is basically telling us we need a recession to stop inflation. And we're now going to create a 100% financing loan with no minimum FICO scores, not, probably not a lot of reserves for lower income households. And if they lose their jobs, guess what? They have to uh, face the consequences. Uh, they don't have a lot of selling equity. So I'm, I understand the concept. And of course, the guidelines are fine. The, the product is fine. But we have to be mindful of where we are in the economic cycle at this stage. You know, I'm, I'm in, I understand the risk that you're talking about, but I personally am really excited to see a depository, um, you know, doing anything in mortgage, right? We've seen them pull back so much this year because the margins are so low. So to me, I'm like, you know, yay for Bank of America for for looking at a program and structuring it so that people's rent history counts as part of their credit score. Now, it's not clear to me, I don't know everything about this product, if debt to income is still being calculated because they're not looking at your credit score. So do you know that if if debt to income is really a part of this calculus? Well, base, basically, your your rent is your liability cost. Your liability cost and any other cost would most likely be calculated uh, against your income. You're, they're not going to lend somebody that, in theory, would have like an eighty percent debt to income ratio. So, uh, if you don't have a credit score, they'll they'll use other items that you're spending monthly. Um, this is why I, I don't think that the product has the capacity to have a lot of volume. Um, but in general, you know, uh, as long as you as long as you have a a normal debt to income ratio and it's a fixed product, you're you're basically fine until you know if, if unfortunately if you lose your job, and this is why I mean this is this is the byproduct. I mean I mean people that have known me for years. I mean Housing Wire people have 
just followed my work from 2020. I have been an advocate against easing lending standards for the last decade. And even, even now, anybody that tells me lending is tight, no, we have very liberal lending standards. It's just that you know, struggling cash flow households typically don't buy homes. That's always been the case, right? If you can't make your credit card payment or, or you're carrying too much credit card debt and your FICO score is low, uh, buying a home usually means uh, uh, that's, that's, not in your, that's not in your future. The minimal debt that you have already is already stressed. So this is why I've always said you're you're never going to have like a major growth in low FICO score home buyers ever again. Uh, the, we've had FHA loans, VA loans. There's all these loans that have very minimal uh, FICO score requirements. It's just that the people that buy the homes usually have very good cash flow. That means their FICO scores are fine already. So the the structural of debt. You know, is is different, so it allows traditional normal home buyers to buy. Uh, so we're never going back. That's never going to happen unless we do some really, we've changed some laws around the country. Uh, so the lending lending is fine. It's still very liberal in my mind, but um, the the risk is always the selling equity, so, right? And for majority of the households, I mean, they 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 have so much selling equity that even if you lost your job, you're you're good to go. You know, if you're forced to sell your home, uh, you're fine. It's always the late cycle lending uh, that's always a risk, and that's why I always talk about it, and I have to talk about it because all six of my recession red flags are up. So. Well, okay. So I'm a little bit confused. So you feel like, you know, lending is in a good spot. It's not too tight. It's very liberal, but at the same time, you're saying that we'll never, you know, just the laws passed and all the regulations will never get us back into that, um, you know, 2008 scenario. So, I mean, in one ways you are, you're saying that lending is tighter in the sense of like who they lend to, but then you're saying, no, it's, it's very liberal. So can you kind of explain that? It's it's only tighter in relationship to the lending that was done from 1996 to 2005, right? So you have uh, you could have exotic loan debt structure products that, in a sense, your FICO score could be 780 or 620. Uh, the loan itself will force you to sell the house. The recast payment will actually determine the ability for you to to hold your to hold your home. So. Uh, when people see that, why aren't Americans who are under 640 FICO score, why aren't they buying homes anymore? Well, there is no more product that can facilitate a lower payment that has a, repay, a recast risk. So uh, in a sense, if you're struggling with making your credit card payments now or have missed credit card payments or missed auto loans, then you know eh, you're most likely not going to be able to buy a house with your total principal interest taxes insurance because the payments you have currently are not uh, uh, are not easy enough for you to make. So we're just back to traditional lending, but it's lending is very liberal because you know you could still buy a home with three and a half percent down, six twenty FICO score, forty three percent debt to income ratio, right? That isn't tight in any in any regards or any anything historically. But if you're talking about the 2002 to 2005 period where lending, if you look at the, um, the Mortgage Banking Association Credit Availability Index, it skyrocketed you know, because there were products that were available to facilitate people into debt products, whether they be primary resident owners, cash out, refinance people, investors. That's all gone. Good riddance. Goodbye. Don't ever come back. Right? Um, 
So uh, it's only we're only tighter in regards to that. But if you look at the history of residential lending, we're we're still very liberal. I mean, you can still literally buy a home with less than five percent down with not a not a very uh, high FICO score if you can make the debt to income ratio payments. That's always the key, right? You can have an eight hundred FICO score. 20% down even, but if your debt-to-income ratio is like 60%, 70%, nobody's going to give you a loan. Uh, there are some equity down loans you know, where you put 40% down, but really traditional, traditional lending is just basically debt-to-income ratios have to be reasonable, uh, and that's the key uh, for all loans that are given. One of the things that's happening right now, you know, when I think of um, interest rates, I always think of mortgage rates because that's what we're always talking about, writing about, um, you know, just in our space. But when you think about the fact that credit card debt is going up, right, like the interest rates on credit cards are, are rising, things like that. What do you see happening? You know, we're talking about the housing recession and you and I have talked about how could that spill over into a larger recession? Of course, you have six recession red flags raised already. What part of that does credit card debt auto loan debt, what part of that does, you know, does that concern you or, or that you look at? Well, it's basically simple. The Federal Reserve wants to hike rates to lower demand and lower demand typically creates recessions. So they're, they're, they're telling you, <laughs> we're going to hike rates, spend less, uh, and you spend less, companies make less, and they need less employers. And one way to do that is raise the cost of money. Um, and that's why they do it. Uh, credit card interest rates are going up. So the houses that are already struggling with inflation and credit card debt, Federal Reserve does not care. They basically said, we are we are here for price stability. And, and they even admit it. You give them credit. They finally said, listen, we're, some people are going to have pain. Some companies are going to have pain. But we have to have price stability. So they are telling you, we are going to push it. Uh, so... Uh, uh, cut your spending down, and unfortunately, there are households that you know don't have that choice. They have to put some of their costs on their credit card and their uh, revolving balances. Now, if you look at the total history right now of credit and credit availability and credit card balances, there's nothing abnormal really. I think people see these month-to-month numbers and they they kind of exaggerate. So the uh, the credit card utilization rate isn't very high on a historical basis, but again. If you're a struggling household, the interest rates are going to go up. Uh, um, so yes, the Federal Reserve is basically doing what they said. We're going to make your life tougher because we need to bring inflation down. And and I give them credit; they basically said that that there's going to be pain, and that's you know typically you hike rates and then the economy eventually falls into a recession. Uh, so you have to be on recession six, my, you know, for, for, for myself, the six recession red flag is, is not a model designed to tell you we're in a recession It's designed to be early, right. Uh, and to keep an eye on different things. And right now the federal reserve is, Hey, we're hiking, we're aggressively hiking because we believe a higher unemployment rate actually will cool inflation down. So, uh, uh, this is why you have to be mindful of this of this Bank of America program or any kind of low down payment loans that there is a risk. Uh, other homeowners don't have that. They have so much nested equity. So people have to be a little bit more respectful to tie to the economic cycle because if the Federal Reserve is telling you, we want pain, we want to create household pain, we want unemployment rates to go high. Well, it's not like they didn't say it. So there's no excuse, right? <laughs> it's not like they didn't tell us. 
So are auto defaults, is that on your radar as far as one of your um, recession red flags or just something you look out for? Is it part of the leading economic indicators? Yeah, auto loan defaults have been used for for uh, so many times in the previous expansion. If you actually look at the percentages, they're not, they're not anything really abnormal um, compared to the previous expansion. We always see an increase in auto uh, defaults, especially in sectors of the economies or areas where you see job losses. Our gas prices rising. Uh, it, it, it's never. It's not even part of my six recession red flag model. It's just uh, we we've seen in 2017 a lot of people said we were going into recession because auto defaults were actually higher back then. Uh, and if you look at the scale of the of the uh, of the total amount of uh, debt that was that was in stress, it wasn't very that big. Um, you have to be mindful. The the people that have really pushed the auto default. Percentages are mostly anti-central bank people, and they're they're in recession watch every day since birth until the very last day of their life. So it's I don't I don't you have there are other things to leading economic index falling matters. Typically, housing goes into a recession uh, before we go into a general recession. Those things actually matter, uh, but consumption data is still reasonably fine. Labor market is still uh, creating jobs. Um, so auto loan defaults are a favorite of the anti-central bank movement, but uh, uh, there are other bigger things that matter. Uh, and we, we've done this before in the previous expansion where auto defaults were rising in 2017 and people were, were hell-bent on the recession happening that year. It didn't matter. Or when Payless Shoes went bankrupt, people were bent on the recession because of that. The uh, I don't know if people remember the, um, the retail apocalypse, all these retail shops are filing for bankruptcy and going under. And that was the groundwork of that recession. Didn't matter because they didn't realize more retail shops are being created that year. So uh, I'm on recession watch. I created a recession model. There's things to watch for. Auto loan delinquencies uh, is not even part of that model. Uh, it hasn't worked in previous uh, expansions. There's other bigger things that matter on the macro side. But of course, that shows you stress uh, you know, when we had the oil shale boom and bust, you saw auto loan delinquencies rise into certain areas. You could get zip code uh, data and you could see certain areas, low income housing, gas prices go up. It's harder to pay your bills. Uh, a general recession needs something bigger than that to occur. And that needs total demand to fall like the Federal Reserve wants. Total demand needs to fall. Um, but uh, you can imagine if the Fed is telling you we're going to charge more for your credit card, guess what? You know, some people get more stressed, some people lose their cars. We've seen that. That's very common um, uh, in the past 10 years. Well, you brought up energy. Well, you brought up oil, which reminded me of energy, which, you know, you and I were having a conversation right before we started on the fact that you're in California. Um, you were, you know, you've been made aware that you might have rolling blackouts. There's huge heat wave all of California, the West, Utah. I'm in Nevada right now. I'm in I'm in Vegas for the Valuation Expo and um no sign of anything wrong here, but you know, you can't really tell <laughs> Vegas doesn't doesn't change. But um we had some really big things happen over the Labor Day weekend, sort of an escalation on the uh Russian invasion of Ukraine side. Tell us what that was and what you think how you think that's going to affect things. You know, the X variables, everything changed when Russia invaded Ukraine, right? Because everybody was pricing for, you know, oil supply disruptions and the possible of a commodity war, right? And we're there. We actually have, in a sense, a World War III event where it's not missiles, but it's commodities, it's energy, right? 
Uh, uh, so Russia is not providing energy to an entire continent in a sense, you know, as, as a price of war. That's, that's their tactic. That's what they choose to do. So you've got other, other things that are outside of a traditional economic expansion and recession that are not good. Uh, and one of the things is that oil prices are falling because China is in recession and China has a COVID shutdown policy. So they're not driving. Europe is about to go into recession, right? Their economy is about to hit worse. Um, so if, if the, if the, let's, let's a hypothetical here, let's say the Russian situation is resolved and China gets off of their COVID policies, which I don't think so, but uh, then energy prices, in a sense, can rebound because demand can pick up. As of right now, we have a full-fledged commodity war that's causing havoc around the world, right? Uh, uh, so you, we, we're dealing with different things that we don't traditionally ever have to worry about, but they're here, so we have to show them respect. And, and again, uh, with, with what Putin did over the weekend, you know, it just showed – I mean, my first inclination is like, wow, he must be really – stressed right now because he's not applying any kind of energy to Europe. And he's saying, we won't do anything until you give us uh, or take the sanctions off. Uh, they also need weapons from North Korea, which isn't a good sign. And uh, they we're doing price caps again for the oil prices. So there's a, there we have a very extreme high variable that can get worse, right? So we have to be mindful of that. And then, of course, China's economy is falling. And sometimes when you want to hide a falling economy, you go into war with someone. Uh, so we have to be a little bit mindful of what's going to happen with Taiwan. These two things have nothing to do with the U.S. economy, but they are factors around the world. So on top of interest rates rising, energy crisis in, uh, in Europe, right? So and we just have to be a little bit mindful that things could actually get worse on that side. Uh, and, and when European countries are in recession, they purchase less. Uh, companies make less money, especially our global, uh, our, our S&P 500 index, so much of their earnings are actually worldwide. So that actually does matter. And what happens if profit margins fall, then companies have to lay people off. So that's, some, that's why I think about you know, the global economy in, in that sense, that uh, you know, two areas of the world. Uh, are in recession and the dollar is so strong, it's creating. Profit. I was going to say you have to talk about King Dollar right now. You know, I mean, I I, I always joke about King Dollar, and, and it's always been my thing. Traditionally, you know, before the Fed hikes rates, you see this really big percentage dollar move, and that the Fed is hiking rates so hard, we're just destroying everyone's currencies. You the euro, the yen. Uh, it's it's not a positive when the dollar gets this strong, especially like a lot of our. Not our allies have a lot of their debts denominated in dollars. So it's, you know, king dollar, great. It's also can be uh, a, a pain around the world. Uh, so uh, the Federal Reserve, again, does not care. <laughs> Federal Reserve simply doesn't care about what, what, what they're doing around the world economy. So they are just going to push it and push it uh, until something breaks. And uh, um, it, it's interesting to watch, but the, you know, people have been talking about the collapse of the dollar, the collapse of America, you know, for like five, 500 years, even though America hasn't been around that long. Um, and here's again, another situation that, that when, when there's drama around the world, the dollar gets stronger for a reason. 
we are literally the only economic superpower left. We've got the demographics, we have the reserve currency of the world, we have two friendly neighbors, two oceans separating us from other, uh, other areas, and we have the biggest military in the world. It's king dollar for a reason, right? Uh, uh, and, uh, but sometimes it could get too strong, and that's what we're seeing here. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, uh, like for me, myself, I hope reporters do two things in the next Fed meeting. What is the consequences of the dollar getting too strong? And are you having meetings with your counterparts around the world to, to ask for intervention? And what does the housing reset mean? Right. Those are two questions I'd love for people to ask, because the dollar getting this strong is, is really problematic for other countries. Amazing insights there, Logan. Um, I would like to remind everybody, our listeners, that uh, you are going to be doing a talk at our Housing Mart Annual Conference, October 3rd through 5th, Scottsdale, Arizona. You're part of an economic panel. We're, go- we're calling it a housing market super session because you're going to talk. We're going to have a panel. We're going to have Q&A. Um, encourage everybody to come out and do that. That's Housing Mart Annual uh, 2022. You can find it easily. Um, you're doing a whole uh, tour of talking this fall. Really excited. You're going to be at Infuse. You're going to be at the Mortgage Bankers, um, the New England Mortgage Bankers Association meeting. Um, and you've got some really interesting things planned. But we think our housing our annual is going to be the, the most special people can come up and ask you questions, right? Yes, always ask questions. The best questions I've always gotten are at these events when people, when I could actually talk and explain something directly to someone. So don't be afraid to ask questions. The only stupid questions are the ones that are never asked. Well, thank you so much. I know we're coming off of a holiday. Um, you know, we're coming off a holiday weekend. We've got a short week. Is there anything coming out this week that you're looking at? Or is it most, most of the things happening next week? You know, uh, the dollar getting stronger is in the in the chaos uh, that's happening around the world. You know, you just keep your eyes on it. Uh, purchase application data came out today, and and uh, always remember that our comps are going to be much harder for housing going out for the rest of the year. Uh, we see the week to week data not doing much. Uh, there's there's minimal movement week to week, but the year over year data, the percentages are going to start to increase. Uh, especially starting in October, we should see, you know, even if the trend is exactly the same, 30, 30% plus year-over-year declines are in play just because last year is when mortgage demand picked up toward the end of the year. Uh, and again, I, I'm just trying to explain the housing data because, you know, we see this big percentage decline in demand and the median days on market is only 14 days. That's the lowest levels ever recorded in history. That does not make sense to a lot of people unless you believe that we just simply have a lack of product out there. So it's not booming demand anymore. And uh, I think that's the uh, what, I'm, what I've been trying to talk about is that sometimes don't think that demand is that strong because you have a competitive market. It's just that there's not enough homes available out there for the people buying. And we have over, we're going to have over 5 million total home sales this year. Uh, so when we look back in the late 70s, ni- early 1980s, we went from 2 million home sales to 4 million, and then from 4 million to 2 million, and we have, in a sense, more active listings back then. Well, the population has grown a lot since the 1980s. So we have more home sales with more people looking. So it's just a function of we just have uh, too many people still looking for too few homes. The pricing mechanisms are changing now. This uh, you, you see sellers adjust more, but it's the dynamics of this housing market are so historically unique that you really have to look at the internal data in a more sophisticated manner. And if you're using 2002 to 2011 sales to inventory credit models to where you think inventory should go, they haven't worked for a reason. 
and uh, always keep an eye on new listings data for the month of September. I do not want to see this decline any faster than it is right now because if sellers quit early, that means we are still stuck below 2019 uh, uh, inventory levels, which I do not believe the U.S. housing market functions uh, with inventory below there. And we got bad inventory news even as recently as Monday on Labor Day, did we not? Yeah, it's, yeah. The uh, the recent data was actually a slight decline uh, in inventory. So, I mean, we're in the seasonal aspect of inventory where it started in October, total inventory falls, but the new listings data started to decline in July. That's way too early for that to happen. And again, a traditional seller, for the most part, that is a primary resident owner, typically is a buyer. So if we haven't actually never really tested a mortgage rate lockdown premise. Uh, it's always been discussed about, but I've always said we never really had this happen before because rates have never really skyrocketed so high in a year. And you need duration, right? You need like two or three years of mortgage rates being, you know, two, three, four percent higher than where they were uh, in the last batch of, uh, of people that bought and refinanced. So uh, for 2023, it's actually going to be, to me, the first authentic year in recent modern day history that we could actually test. Is there actually a thing that's real about a rate lockdown that people just refuse to move because it just costs too much or they don't want to give their rates? So uh, in the past, mortgage rates typically always fell. So we never really had to, we never had a test run, but we're starting to get to the point where next year would be the first official year. I think it would be a a good test case for anybody tracking housing data. Wow. We will be right here uh, looking at it, having you on to explain it. There's a lot going on, Sarah. There's so much. I feel like, okay, no, I, you know, we're getting close to our mark of of when we try to end this. And I'm like, but I still have questions. So, you know, we we, we went a little long today. That's why we'll have you back in a couple of days. Thanks so much, Logan. Appreciate you. Take care. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW Plus, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to HousingWire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.